Former U.S. National Rugby Team Captain. Team Captain. Head Coach and General Manager. General Manager. Now, the co-founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks. Now, now, Full Contact CEO with Alex Magleby. Hey everyone, thanks for joining Full Contact CEO today. I'm your host, Alex Magleby. I'm also co-founder and CEO of the Free Spirit and Moon Free Jacks. Joining me today is Charlie Davies, a New England native with 17 appearances for the U.S. national soccer team. has dominated MLS, fighting his trade all over Europe through his long story, legendary career. And of course, now you can catch him on CBS Sports as a soccer analyst. And he can be found running the Quinn Impact Fund here in Boston. It's so excited to finally connect Charlie and really just so excited to dig into so many things about your life and everything else. So welcome to Full Context CEO. Thank you. And likewise, I'm, I'm excited to, to share my story and, and get to know you better. Awesome. How much do you know about rugby? Not too, not too much. I've seen it. I've seen it a bunch. Um, you know, playing in France, it was one of the major yeah. sports there. So we love them. Um, yeah. yeah. Think about all the great things about soccer, and then you can do even more fun things. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay, we're going to play a quick just warm-up word game. I'm just going to say a word, and you just say what the first thing that comes to mind. Cool? Cool. Revolution. Dominant. Brooks. Academic. Hammerby. Can I say that right? Yeah. Well, it's Hammerby, but yeah, Hammerby. same thing. I would say transformative. Confederations Cup. Legendary. Wuvazela. Insula. Yeah. Exciting. So, no, exciting. I loved it. We had one at our, one of our first home matches was last year. And the complaints from everybody else, I was like, hey, thanks. He's done it pretty cool. It adds to the atmosphere. Like, mm-hmm. wow. I, I'd rather sound than nothing. So, yeah, that's good. Stanky light. Swag. Brilliant. So, you grew up in New England. You actually grew up just down the road. I'm in Hanover, New Hampshire. You grew up in Manchester. Really? That's true. I grew up in, in Manchester, New Hampshire. I was born in Lawrence, Massachusetts, but Manchester is, is kind of what shaped me. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, one of many great celebrities from the lovely Granite State, where we live for and die. And how'd you get into how'd you get into football? How'd you get into soccer? It was a complete accident. Everyone in my neighborhood had played football. NFL was the dominant league. And as a kid, my role models were Barry Sanders, you know, Michael Irving, Emmett Smith. Deion Sanders. So that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be, you know, a future NFL prospect. And I, I came home from first grade with a permission slip thinking it was Pop Warner tryouts. And it was indeed uh, soccer tryouts. And my father uh, was born and raised in Gambia in West Africa. So soccer is all he's ever known. And he played it. And so he lit up like a Christmas tree. And he's like, this is what you want to do? And I was like, yes, yes. And he's like, let's go to the store. And so he was so excited. He go by Yeah. When he, he started picking up, you know, soccer balls and cleats and shin guards, I was like, I think I, I made a mistake, but I didn't say anything. Yeah. And because he was too excited. And that's kind of how it started. It's like, all right. We love you, Dad. I'm going to stick with it. And did, did you stay with it? Because, like, like, I mean, you obviously had a illustrious career, but how did you stick with it? Was it like, yeah. Was uh, this kind of like Olympic development? program was that odp was that the era that well this this at the very beginning it was literally town soccer and it was yeah. Derry, new hampshire at the time and i tried out for the Derry eagles which was the travel soccer team of of the town and i did not make it uh, i was disappointed because whatever you wanted whatever you end up choosing to do or anything that you do you, you want to be good 
And yeah. so I was disappointed. I knew my father was a little disappointed. And he asked me, do you want to be good? And who's going to say, no, I don't want to be good. So it, it started with practice sessions every day after school for three, three to four hours every single what? day. I was six. And you were literally like, I want to work three to four hours on software. Every day. And I also, I also felt that I was, I felt loved, you know, in a way, like, cause my dad, you know, that one-on-one -on -one time with your father and my brother was two years younger than me. So he wasn't able to do that yet. So it was just me and my father. And about a month in, I was scoring like seven goals a game in, in the recreation league. And so the travel team called my father and said, Hey, would Charlie like to play for us now? And my dad just said, actually, no, thank you. And we went to Londonderry, New Hampshire to play. And it probably didn't start to become a dream for me until I went to a World Cup game for my eighth birthday. And so I went to Gillette, the old Foxborough Stadium. The 94, and, World uh, 94 World Cup, it was South Korea versus Bolivia. And getting a chance to see just the excitement and all the different types of people in the parking lot and playing pickup soccer and the face paint and the, the wave. Two countries that I had never heard of, but I think just the, the culture was so accepting no matter what you looked like. And I saw a lot of different people, different faces. I knew that this is what I wanted to do. And so you're eight years old. Okay. I'm on, I'm going to keep up this three to four hour regiment every day. Yeah. I mean, the thing was, I didn't look at it as a three or four hour regiment. I looked at it as fun. I looked at it as this is. This is what's going to get me to my goal. And to be honest, no one else played soccer in my neighborhood and my, you know, really in my school. And so I also played the other sports because I wanted to say, hey, I might play soccer, which you don't rate. You don't think it's a cool sport, but I'm better than whatever sport you play. So my, my thing was whatever I put myself, you know, in, into any type of situation, I want to make sure that I was going to perform and that I wanted to be accepted. And so uh, I ended up playing Pop Warner football and I excelled in it. But ultimately, I always knew my father was going to push me towards soccer. And I, I would be that kid coming home from school and I would run two miles, two miles every single day before my training session. And then I, after every training session, I would do hill sprints and I would do, it, it was probably, you know, a good 50, 40, 50 yards of running uphill on these steep inclines and, and I would finish a training session. I'd run 10 of those every, every time. And I enjoyed it. It was just part of my, part of my nature. I mean, there, there was, you know, kids would see me every day and be like, what are you doing? What do you, why do you practice train so much? And, and I'd say, there's no, there's nothing else for me. Like this, this is it. I didn't have any other avenue to go down. Like, even if I went back now, to this day, if I go back in time, there's still nothing else for me to pursue. Like, that was the only way for me to make it out of my situation, which was to play sports. Is that factual or that was the mindset? I think it's factual and it's the mindset. So, you know, my father was addicted to, to drugs, to crack, and my mother suffered from a, a severe bipolar disorder. So, you know, I, I rarely had both parents at the same time in my household when we lived in a tiny apartment. So, you know, whether my mother was in the mental institution and I'd go to visit her and that's not a pleasant visit at all, or my father would, he'd be with me, you know, he, cause he was one of those, those guys who, 
he was dedicated to to training me. You know, that that was something he took a lot of pride in. And when I didn't have a game, because he never missed a game, but when I didn't have a game, he would he would disappear for a couple of days. And so, you know, I had to raise my brother at times. You know, I had to be the father figure for him and he's two years younger than me. And then sometimes I just had my the only way I could have some sort of freedom or enjoyment in my life was to go outside and play sports. And that's kind of how I was able to cope with everything that was going on. Okay, and that's the responsible. How do I take care of mom? How do I take care of dad? I'm going to take care of my little brother. My dad clearly is passionate. shows off the little excelling in sports. So that'll be the tool by which I use to, to connect. Curious, looking back on your life today, if that were happening today, do you think there were there are opportunities that exist today where you could have learned how to compute a program or other avenues? But your point is no. I mean, that was really the no. I, I mean, no chance because <laughs> you. I didn't have. I didn't have a way to travel. You know, I, I rode my bike. I had a bike, so I rode that all over the the city. But you know, as as far as having someone that I could talk to that didn't exist, having a role model or someone who I could look up to and they could lead me, lead the yeah. way for me or expose me to something new that did not exist. I had never gone on a, a vacation before in my whole life until my first year as a professional. I went to Aruba for the first time. So I'd never gone on a vacation. I had never been exposed to computer science or, you know, being a it, it, like the possibility of being a doctor or a lawyer, you know, I had one, I remember, I'll never forget. I won a mock trial in sixth grade. It was the state's competition in Concord. And I was a defense attorney and I won the trial. How fun, how fun is mock trial, by the way? It's so much fun. I yeah. was, I was like really invested, but I did it, but there was, and we won, but there was nothing after. So even if that was something I wanted to do, I wouldn't have ever known how to pursue that career or, or what steps I'd need to take to become a successful lawyer. What do I need to study? Or and so, you know, I just, for me, the only way I saw me getting a chance to have success in my life was through sports and literally soccer is what got me into Brooks school, the, the, the prep school that showed me what life's all about and molded me and, and allowed me to grow and, and mature I grew so much there as a person and a, and a student more than I did as an athlete, which, which allowed me to become a better athlete because you are that much more educated. So yeah, it, there's a lot in there, <laughs> but ultimately I, I was just a driven kid and I wasn't going to let anything kind of de deter me from that. Well, you made the choice, which is, it's never easy to, no matter what's happening in life and, and the difficulty of doing that every day and making the choice. Two really important points. One, that, that is a case study about how important sports are. And what I mean by that is getting, granting the accessibility to sport. And I think my concern, certainly looking from the outside in at soccer as we try to develop rugby, the travel and the cost by which a sport that really is played around the world on a field of ball that requires nothing, nothing to, to be able to really play the game and the enormous cost that requires a family's money and time and then the accessibility then to access a sport like that. Is that true? And how is that changing? And so as we're building rugby and it's going so fast in this country, but we're trying to figure out how do we make sure we don't go down those same, you know, like travel team baseball and that's all someone does for 12 months a year. And 
those pieces that the, the high specialization, which also come with high costs for club coaches and touring and, and all those pieces. And just, you know, you've seen it now kind of where it's been from playing, to seeing the world cup as a fan to then going through the entire experience drafted and playing in Europe and playing the national team and now analyzing the game. What, what is, what is soccer doing? Where has soccer come from in that regard? Making it an accessible day. For I mean, life, soccer, life changing. Yeah. I'd say soccer took a, a, a real turn for the better after the 94 world cup, because everyone was exposed to the sport. Not too many people knew about soccer. And so now on the global level, the national level, I think people really took an interest in it. And then the women's game with the 99ers with Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy and Michelle Akers and that whole squad, they, Brianna, Brianna Scurry, like that well, team continued to push like the interest. And now soccer, I think came onto the scene officially in the 2002 World Cup. But I think as a kid, m my father did everything he could to, you know, because teams cost a lot of money in the travel, he created his own club teams and, and would you know, train us and we could compete on the state level. We won state championships. We, you know, and then I think once I started to continue to progress, then teams would allow me to not pay as much or I'd, I'd you know, I'd have like a partial discount slash scholarship to play for certain teams. But still at the end of the day, when you're traveling for tournaments, I'm not flying. I'm not staying at the nice hotels or staying at the motels. My dad, you know, would have, it's one of those things where I was always embarrassed to drive with my family because the cars were so bad, you know, whether a window was missing or cracked or it's a broken, kind of broken down type thing. And you don't want to be seen in this car. That was kind of my childhood. And so, um, I think my, my, my family did everything they possibly could to make it work. And, and I'm grateful for that considering everything that had happened. But then I think soccer started to change over the past 10 years or so where they just saw the, the dollar signs and that they could make a lot of money. And it was not so much about the experience and the development. It was more about the business and the profit. And when the U.S. failed to make the World Cup in 2018, there, everyone pointed the finger at the development in this country and, yeah. you know, the, the pay to play model and it's too expensive and you're pricing kids out and you, you can't get the, the kids from the diverse communities or the, the urban communities, the, those kids, because it's just too expensive and you're not going to be able to, those kids can't afford it. But then the MLS, Acad MLS academies come into play and now they're, you know, they, they basically sponsor your, your whole growth and, and development within the academy, but up to that certain point. So I think it starts at 13 or 14. So what are you doing before 13 and 14? If you're a five-year-old or six-year-old or seven-year-old kid, you don't come from money and maybe your parents don't have the time to even drive you around. How do you pursue soccer? How do you not only pursue soccer, how do you become one of those kids at 13 or 14 to get taken to play at an MLS Academy? So that's, that's the problem right now is trying to figure out the best system in order to do that. I, I remember as a kid, it was pretty simple. You played on a club team. It wasn't, it wasn't a $2,500 bill to play on this team. It was maybe sometimes it was 500, sometimes it was a hundred. And sometimes you're playing with hand-me-down jerseys, whatever it was. Whereas now you have kids with 
four kits home away the third kit and you know all these different jerseys and bags and it's a little disappointing but at the same time i also see a lot of people working to solve that that problem so like in every sport i think there's always a way to go everyone's looking to change to make it more accessible and and equitable for for everybody i think soccer is the global is the global sports game for that reason it's so easy to to play you don't need much and it's usually equitable. It's, it's it used to, for a lot of countries. It's like the poor man's sport. So I think in this country, we've done a great job of developing players, but we can do a much better job of, of finding the, the right talent and, and making it just accessible to everybody. And you see, you see a lot more specialization today. And you played football from there. You wrestled in high school. Mm-hmm. A multi-sport athlete. I'd assume that made you a better soccer player. That's my assumption coming from sport that you don't really peak at until your late 20s because it requires so much physical ability to compete at the, at the international stage, plus the skill acquisition, or the mental side of having to play the game. Soccer, do you have to specialize? You know, I mean, is that the thing where it has to be 24-7 and six years old? No, before no, out? not, and I love this question, Alex, because I would say, did Bo Jackson specialize in, in one sport? Did Deion Sanders, did Herschel Walker? Some of the greatest athletes that we've ever come to know did not just play one sport. The thing for me that I learned, I think at a very young age was the movements in football. If you're a running back and you have to juke a linebacker or a safety or whoever, um, you can apply that to yourself as a striker or a winger or a midfielder, if you're dribbling and someone's running at you and you have to get by them with the ball, it's the same kind of actions. And then when I made the jump to wrestling, that gave me kind of the X factor. That's what allowed me to really develop into the player I became because not only do you have the mental toughness, the 1v1, the, the strength and conditioning, but it, it gave you the balance and just that tenacity that I was able to add to my game. So now no matter who I was going against, if it was a six foot four center back, that the fear factor was gone because I liked, I liked the, the physical contact. I liked to engage people I, and I knew how to roll them and use their, their force and against them. You yeah. know, I, I knew how to counterbalance everything. And so, um, I would always encourage young players to try different sports as many as you can, because they end up helping you become the best athlete, the best version of yourself in whatever sport you'd naturally choose in the end. Because I think we all know which sport we're, end- we're, we're inevitably going to be the best at. And because I think it naturally selects itself because you're, if I'm, you know, I'm a kid, I played basketball. I was horrible at basketball, but it allowed me to, to kind of develop some, some, you know, as a defender, I was good at defending and boxing out. And then in soccer, you got to be able to shield and use your body well. So there are just a lot of different sports that allow you to become a better version of yourself and, and honing in on certain skills, hand-eye coordination versus foot-eye coordination and the balance and mental toughness and playing team sports versus playing individual sports, um, wrestling, tennis, golf, yeah. you know, some of those things. So when I look at rugby, I mean, of course you benefit if you wrestled and if you played American football. Yeah, you know, and those are just two sports that are pretty similar. Basketball players, you know, hand-eye coordination and basketball. Surprisingly, baseball as well. I think baseball is such a great game for teaching you how to fail. Right? It's like 
you versus the pitcher. And if you're really good, you're going to do three. You know, <laughs> walking back and sitting on the bench. And I wasn't a baseball person. It's been seen that tennis, one of the tennis, one of the, the handmade coordination. So I think the point is enormously, enormously valid. You, you, you know, you do have to develop those other skills in your sport and, and really hone them. But having the other things to come around that, I think, is, is really important, especially for our sport. You know, we need three, four um, sport athletes in high school who will probably be most successful in rugby at the end of the day. Because at 20 years old, 22 years old, you are physically you're going to mature enough to be able to take international test rugby. There's, just, there's only so many people who can transition the good news there's body all different body types who can do that but so you were in uh, manchester and then you ended up at brooks how is that academically you know for, for our listeners you know great academic school and it's a great mm-hmm. sports well, but a great classic did you stay on campus did you commute yeah I, I lived on campus for all four years in the same dorm and it was it was a difficult transition because you, you go from homework and public school and testing and it wasn't all that demanding, you, you, you didn't have that relationship with the teacher to really go in depth in the, in, in, at times because they have, you know, I had 42 kids in my class, 36 kids in my class, as opposed to at Brooks, I had 10 kids in my class, eight yeah. kids in my class, 12 kids in my class. We're all so perfectionists like you. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's much more time spent with the teacher. And so you, you, you don't feel like afraid to ask questions as well that they, whereas if you're asking a question in front of 36 or 42 kids and, um, you, you have people laughing at you or making fun of you or, you know, why you, you know, taking the time to ask questions anyways, th- that stigma is gone in, in prep school. And I'd say the study hall part really helped me as well because you're the scheduling. I didn't have that in, in my life. You have uh, no free time. Having a structure. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, like, I didn't know what that was. So having structure and a schedule allowed me to focus and get my work done. And, you know, you, I had teachers who could show me how to do that. It were, that would never have happened had I gone to it, which would have been Manchester Memorial High School in the south side of Manchester, New Hampshire. So I'm, in, I'm eternally grateful for that whole process of going to Brooks School and understanding what it means to be a student and understanding what it means to, to study and to learn a certain values and, and to learn how to become, you know, a, a real student athlete. And then you decided you chose uh, Boston college and you decided yep. to stay in the world. How come? Just out of curiosity. Yeah. I chose Boston college because I wanted to stay close to home. Um, so my, my family could come to the games. I felt I owed that to my father and, and my mother because, you know, the sacrifice that, that they put in to allow me to play the sport that's been able to take me across the, the world. And so, um, when I, when I looked at the schools in New England and my father was kind of adamant that I stay close so he could come watch my games. He's like, don't you want me to come be, you know, I've supported you through this whole, this whole process. So it was Brown, Boston College, and UConn. Those were the final three for me. And I, I loved Brown. My grandfather on my mother's side went there. And uh, great campus, obviously a phenomenal school. The coach, Mike Noonan, who, who just won a national championship with Clemson, was the coach at the time. And 
great guy, but I, I didn't have the best vibe on my tour. That that actually the student who was taking me around was like, "Don't come here. You can go to what? so many other." Yeah, he's like, "You can go to so many other better schools. Like to have fun. It's not the the most fun. It was just a it, not that you go to school to have fun, but it was just kind I'm of a off. yeah." And then I went to UConn and I just felt that it was a little over the top. So they picked me up in a limo after one of the games and, you know, they gave me a jersey to, to wear on campus and, you know, played a recording that was like in the future where I scored that the game winning oh, goal. Brought me to the, yeah, it took, brought me to the, 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 the bar on campus called Huskies and like I hadn't drank before and so oh, they were like giving yeah. me drinks and I, I left that like. What like had been it almost like had been a rock star for a weekend. I was like, that's just not sustainable. I can't survive. Yeah. yeah, I'm not gonna survive. And I went to BC, and it just felt like home. It was you know hang out with the guys in the dorm, play some poker, play some FIFA. You know, uh, it was just much more relaxed. The campus is beautiful. You're attached to a city too. It it, it just felt more more me and and the natural pro- progression from Brooks to Boston College. You know, it just felt more in line. So that was, you know, kind of an easy choice for me. Yeah. So you continue to do well at BC on the field. What did you study? So when I first decided it was psychology and after that first semester, I was like, everyone was like, where are you going to go with psychology? It's kind of, it's a interesting major. It's not, there's not much flexibility with it as far as jobs Yeah. after soccer. And so for media. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I decided to switch over to communications and communications was the best because they're like, it's so broad. You can do anything X, Y, Z. And I really enjoyed it. I I think, you know, the public speaking class obviously was, was fun, phenomenal for me. It really helped, I guess, in in my next step as becoming a professional soccer player. That's right. And then you decided, did you you go through the MLS draft? So no, I, a junior year. I finished second uh, in the voting for the the Herman Trophy, which is the equivalent to the Heisman Trophy, and had won ACC uh, Player of the Year. And I, I knew my dream was to play in Europe, professional soccer. I had always dreamed of playing in Europe, and I knew if I wanted to be the best Charlie Davies I could be, and this isn't for everybody, I think for me, I had to be in Europe to be in that environment, to be pushed. And so MLS offered me the Generation Ideas contract. Remind so, me how that uh, works again. Is that like that captures you for a certain amount of time and gives you more salary? Remind me how. Yeah, it's it's about a five year deal, and yeah, there's a a component for for education that that's part of it. So you can finish your degree for money to go back to school, and you know it's a, it's a tied to Adidas, which is the league sponsor, and so basically they said here's that that deal that locks you in as as an adidas athlete and you're sponsored by adidas and the league and it's kind of you know allows you to go back to school and finish at any point and so it was that and it's you know it's one of those deals where it's it's incredible and for for most people it might be the right decision but for me i i wanted to take a risk and i took a chance on going on a trial to ajax in, in amsterdam which the ajax the ajax is you yeah. know it's known to to be if not the best, one of the best for developing talent. So I decided to take a chance on taking a trial offer, which is no guarantees versus a guaranteed contract to to be in the draft and and be signed. So I did that. And uh, it's awesome. Like just self-belief in in what was going to your life. I think it was, I really believed in myself to go in and showcase my talent because I played in an international tournament 
before ahead of my sophomore year, the summer before my sophomore season. And it was the Milk Cup in Northern Ireland. And we won. We beat Northern Ireland in the final, but we beat Brazil in the semifinal and we beat Serbia. And so I had won the golden ball at that tournament. I had won the MVP trophy and and the golden boot. And so I knew I was ready. I, I felt like I had kind of tested myself against some of the top talent in, in the country slash the world. And uh, I was ready for that next step. And I really believed in myself because I had uh, kind of, I, w- I was kind of a, a different type of player. I was like, I would say kind of like a unicorn, like how many soccer players were wrestlers, you know, or, or yeah. you know, football players. And so I had something different that a lot of people didn't have. That's, and that's I, and I saw that and I felt it. <laughs> What were your parents? Were they weighing in on that? No, not really. Because at that point I knew I, I have to go with what's best for me. And, you know, my, my dad was kind of just like excited by the whole process. He's like, this, you know, it's awesome. My mom, same thing. They were just excited for me and happy. And they knew I was going to, I was going to go with my heart and what was best for me. And ultimately I, I signed with Nike before I even went to Ajax. So I always consider myself a Nike athlete because all the players I looked up to, Thierry Henry and Ronaldo, yeah. uh, the original Ronaldo, I say the OG Ronaldo from Brazil, they were all Nike athletes. And you throw in Michael Jordan, King Griffey Jr. and Deion Sanders, all these other athletes I looked up to as a kid, Michael Johnson in the 96 Olympics with the gold shoes. I It was almost like tattooed on me. And I, yeah. I would not have felt comfortable playing yeah. in any other brand. And so... I signed with Nike and and decided to take the trial. So they also believed in me because they signed me before I had done anything, before I've even signed a contract with any other team yeah. in Europe because they just they thought I was going to be that that kind of kind of player. And then you, you had the trial with Ajax and then what happened? So the trial was going well. First game right off the plane. I flew. They drove me to play in a game with the reserves. It was a kind of a difficult uh situation but they knew i had just gotten off the plane it was an okay game for me and so uh, the second game was was with the the top academy team so i think it was the under 18s and i scored a hat trick and been at my absolute best and i i felt after that game i remember oh. Wesley snyder who was playing for the dutch dutch national team at the time as well as ix his father was watching the game and told my agent oh this guy's gonna be special and so I was like, ah, I got it. I'm going to get that contract. And so there was one more game before um, a contract would be offered. And the, the sporting director was there and I think the head coach. And I pulled my hamstring in like the 10th minute of the game. It was a cold, rainy day. And I was like, I got to play through it. And it, it was not a good game. I couldn't run properly. And they're like, we, we can't give you a contract. You'd have to wait like another two or three weeks or, you know, and I just said, ah, I can't do that. And so. Hammerby came in with a contract and they said, fly to Stockholm. We have a contract ready. We don't need to see anything. We, we want to sign him. And so I flew to Stockholm the next day, had a dinner with the coach, Tony Gustafsson. He told me the plan for me that, it, you know, he had played college soccer. So he knows kind of the system and that's all I need to hear. And I signed the contract the next day. That's awesome. And so you played, you played in Sweden. How long was that? I played in Sweden for two and a half seasons. Incredible. My first season, I struggled mightily, could not score a goal. I was not eating properly. You know, I was eating fast food. I didn't know how to cook and I didn't take care of myself properly. And so about six months in the coach, you know, and I'd have great training sessions, but it'd be like once a week. And the coach basically said, after six months, you need to train like you do on your best day every single day. 
And you need to put your head down and just train hard and not ask me why you're not starting. And when you're ready, I'll let you know you're ready. Or you can go home to the United States and give up. So it's one or the other. And I said, obviously, I'm not going to give up. So I just put my head down, worked hard. And the last game of the season, I scored a hat trick. And so it went from this kid, American kid with a lot of potential who's struggling. The fans never gave up on me. They always supported me. And then all of a sudden, I score a hat trick. And they go, ah, there he is. That's the kid we've been waiting for. And then next year, I kind of took off and um, never looked back. And I, and I got to participate in the Olympics in my second season in Beijing in 2008 for the U.S., which was also an incredible experience, a dream, something I've always yeah. dreamed of as a, as, a, as a kid. And then the, the third season, halfway through, I got called up to the full U.S. men's national team to play at the Confederations Cup. I, I played the first game against Italy. I came out as a substitute. I remember I got a corner kick from Landon and I, I was looking at the goal and I saw Gigi Buffon in goal and I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to score on Gigi Buffon because I could see the ball like slow motion. And I was just thinking in my head, like, I'm going to score on Gigi Buffon and what's my celebration? And I skied it over. I missed it. <laughs> I didn't play the second game against Brazil and we got smoked. We lost two nil. And the third game just before Bob Bradley said, you know, we're going to make some changes. And so it was like a training session, a full training session. And it was basically like, play your way into the lineup. If, if, if there's ever, ever a time that you have to train super well to earn a starting spot, like this would be the training. And I had literally probably the best training of my life. I think I, every time I touched the ball, I scored. We were playing like 7v7, small-sided, and I was just on in fuego. And Brad Guzan and, 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 and myself started. Those were the only two changes. And then we, we won 3-0. Brazil beat Italy 3-0, so we both advanced. It was like one of those improbable situations. And uh, and then we ended up being Spain in the semifinals. They hadn't lost in two years. We beat them, and then they go on to win the World Cup the I next year. Like, you know, like, just that was, like, U.S. soccer has arrived, and then team has arrived. Here yeah, it is. It, it was just amazing. And then to be up against Brazil in the final 2-0, we went into the locker room, and I think we all thought, oh, my God, we're going to win this Confederations Cup. Like, not only that, but that means we can win the World Cup because yeah. these are the best teams in the world and we're, oh. we're right there with them. We're beating them. Similar so, rosters, right? Similar rosters to the 2010 team. Very similar. I think for Spain, the only difference was Iniesta. I mean, that's a big difference, but yeah, it was that's missing. That's awesome. And then what happened in the Brazil game? We scored in the first goal and Clinton Dempsey scored. And then the second goal, we were playing a counterattack. I got the ball down the left flank. I just like took off and I... I peeked over and I saw Landon making a streaking run. So I was able to hook the ball around the last defender to Landon and he cuts, I think it was Ramirez who, who kept, he came back and cut him and bent it to uh, shot it down to the far, far post. We're up two nil halftime. We're all like, Oh my God. And I think we, I think that the message was don't allow them to score in the first 10 minutes. And they scored like three minutes into the second half. And then it was like, we woke up a sleeping giant and, and we were under pressure for, for the rest of the second half. And they scored the third goal to win it in probably in the 82nd minute or 86th minute, something wow. like that. And we all knew that once they scored that first goal, it was like they kept coming in waves and we were trying to hold on. But the, the, I think the equalizer kind of buried us. Yeah. But what a great experience. You went from there, then you're in a 
you had a training camp or something in BC. What happened with the accident? Yeah, I had, after that Confederations Cup, I got purchased by a club in France. So I was playing in the French top division for a club called FC Sochaux. And it, incredible to play at that level, you know, you're, where you're playing against Champions League players and Champions League teams, you know, every week. And, and that's what I was craving to get better. And I scored two goals in my first home game against the league champions, defending league champions. So it, it just felt like I was on this roller coaster and I, I was on this, I was in this Lamborghini or Ferrari going, you know, 150 miles per hour because it felt like I was moving at the speed of light. I'm on this rocket and things just kept happening for me. I'm scoring goals and teams are talking about me. You know, I had one of my, my teammates telling me that a lot of English Premier League teams are talking to his agent about me. And, and then all of a sudden we qualify for the World Cup. And, and I, I remember we flew to Washington, D.C. We had one game left in the World Cup qualifying campaign, which didn't matter anymore because we had qualified, but you wanted to finish on top of the group. So there was still a little, there was still a little importance and significance in the match. And so I wasn't going to play because I had strained my groin. I went out on a Monday night with my roommate, Stu Holden, to uh, a sports bar restaurant on M Street in Georgetown watching Monday Night Football, and then I decided to see a friend and hang out past curfew, which was midnight, and wasn't wasn't drinking or partying or anything like that. And then 2.30 comes around. I'm going back to the hotel with two girls I had met six months before that in D.C. They were going to drop me off, and then I put on my seatbelt, and I wake up, and I'm in a hospital. And I had suffered a broken femur, tib tibia and fibula in my right leg, so my right leg was shattered. My left elbow was fractured and dislocated. My bladder ruptured, countless rib fractures, facial fractures, and, and a brain bleed. And um, the passenger pa tragically passed away on impact. So I was airlifted to the Washington Hospital Center and I was put on, you know, tons of medication. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things where I think I woke up four or five days later and I thought I was kidnapped because we had just played in Honduras where we qualified for the World Cup. And I thought I was in a hostel and they were stealing my organs. And yeah, it was, it was one of those moments, obviously that changes you forever. And so what I did realize from that experience was sports and soccer isn't, isn't everything. There's much more to, to life than that. And that you can't take any day for granted. You can't take walking and waking up for granted. And so I wanted to live my life in a different manner. And that was just to appreciate everyone and anyone and to make the most out of every day. And so I had to, you know, I was in the hospital for a month. I had to relearn how to walk. I had to relearn how to take a shower, how to put on clothes, how to eat food. I had speech problems for about three months or so from, from the brain bleed. And, and then I was kind of focused on getting back on the, on the field, to be honest. I, I wanted to make up uh, for the mistake because I really put it on myself that I put myself in that situation. And I wanted to, I let down my, my, my family, I let down my teammates, I let down my country. And the only way I saw fit to make it up to them was to get back on my feet and to get back on the field and to, to show them that I, I wanted to make up for this and, and kind of ask for forgiveness. And everyone supported me. Everyone pushed me. Everyone Coaching. gave me the courage and the strength to keep going. You know, we have going to have athletes in similar situations in the future. Is that more like a personal health insurance thing? Was that national team stuff? Yeah, it was, it was insurance. You know, you, you have, you have your regular 
insurance for your team. You have the team insurance, but also, you know, career ending insurance. So I had, you know, and then, you know, not being able to play in France. So I had an insurance there. So they pay you, pay your, your, pay your salary until you can return to the field until you, you basically are cleared by your doctors. Yeah. So I was, you know, out of commission for at least six, six, seven months until I was cleared with my French team. But the, the thing for me was I got back on my feet and I started jogging around four months in. And I was like, I thought I could make the World Cup. I, I really thought I could just get to the camp. You know, I think that was the goal to, by May to get back in the World Cup camp. Even if I didn't make it, just being like, look, look how far I came. I'm going to get there. And in April, I was training with my team in France. And people were like, this I mean, I couldn't really run that fast. I couldn't run really w well at all. I was, you know, I didn't want to touch the ball because I'd lose it every time. I had no strength. I think if anyone had saw, saw me, like my teammates in France, they're like, whoa, you're never going to be able to play again. And it, it was, there, the, the mental strain um, of trying to compare your, compare your current self to your to your former self and yeah. living up to those expectations that that alone was was difficult let alone like actually trying to overcome the injury so my right leg was an inch and a half shorter than my left so is that still to this day yes so from the femur break so naturally now you're unbalanced and your body's trying to compensate and figure figure itself out and, you know, I wore all these different lengths, different, I had different shoes. So Nike had, had made different types of, of shoes with, you know, different heights and weights and trying to f help me out in that instance. It, it was a process. And I think in the end, I was just grateful that I, I could go on the field. And um, my wife, Nina, she was like, she was the rock. Like I, she was the one who would, you know, keep pushing me and giving me that, that support and just knew how to keep me going. So I didn't, didn't falter or stop. I, I knew I could never stop, but you know, didn't derail me, so to speak. So it was, it was, a, it's one of those things where I'm grateful it all happened because I'm going to be the best person I could possibly be from these experiences. And so I come back from that. I'm never the same player. I never get to play for the national team again, even though throughout the whole, the whole rest of my career, I did get, get back on the field a year and a half later, yeah. scored two goals in my first game back for DC United, which was incredible. I mean, it's a dream, but that's what I was chasing. I was chasing the national team and I was chasing my old self. So I was always compared to the 2009 Charlie Davies. And, you know, that, that's just what I had to live with. That's a way. How did you manage that? I just, I just knew I had to, I had, if, if, if I was going to play, that's what, that's what was going to be, I guess, natural for, for people to always look at, man, Charlie used to be able to accelerate here and he could beat anybody here. And, you know, I didn't have that, that, that burst that I used to have. I felt I could outrun anyone in the world. If you gave me, you know, a one-on-one -on -one chance, I felt I could beat anybody in the world. After the accident, I did not. And so you have to change your game. You have to figure out what you're good at, what you're still good at, what, where, where can you be better? And, you know, just reading the game. And I, I think I managed pretty well considering I had to change the way I play and um, still found ways to have success. And it's just reading the game that much better. I, I had to become, I had to learn the game, I think a little, 
in a, in a different way and see the game in a different way, but I was able to, to excel still. So, you know, it was, it, you go through being benched, you not, not, not getting used to being benched or not making the squad at times. Um, all those things that you've worked so hard in your life to not have to go through now I'm faced with, and now you're seeing it from that perspective of the guys who don't make the squad every week, but train so hard. And the guys who, you know, don't get to play a game, but feel like they should or trained well. And now I'm that, I'm now all of a sudden I'm that person. And so it, and it's never easy. You, you can never get used to it. It's, it's just not in, I think any athlete's nature to be, to, to, to settle or be satisfied with not playing. Everyone wants to play. That's why you play the game, but, uh, and how you handle it, the manner you handle it, that is how you, you learn and mature and grow. And so that was the biggest thing for me. It was understanding that you're no longer the guy, you know, you, you are no longer the, the untouchable. Okay. Uh, bridging star of the national team through the accident, getting through Seraphine and everything else. And then they're like, I'm a different person now. And these are things I can actually control on the field. And this is what I'm going to focus which, which is great. And you had a, a electric MLS career, including, you know, the year at the Revs in New England, 2016 over around. Did I read that you then had to battle cancer? Yeah, that was another big obstacle. At <laughs> first, it was, um, it was our twin boys were born three months early. So they were in the NICU here at the Brigham and Women's Hospital for, for 92 days to be exact. But the, the first month or so while they were there, and there's all this uncertainty, will they live, you know, what are, what are going to be the ramifications from being born so early and, and the constant worry and supporting your, your wife and, and kids every day? It took away from me being able to, to focus and be a professional athlete and train and, and sleep right and eat right. And so I pulled a groin muscle in a match. I had a scan, an MRI to see how severe it was because they wanted to know if it was going to be a short time recovery or a long time, long term. And they found a tumor in my other leg. So incidental find, I always look at things happen for a reason. So my, my boys were born or early to save my life uh, ultimately. Amazing. And, um, it turns out that it's a liposarcoma cancer. So I had surgery, I believe on January 3rd or 6th. I can't remember exactly what day it was the third or sixth. And the boys who came out of the hospital on January or June 13th, I believe. So everything kind of happened at the same time. And it was a, Really, it was the hardest, hardest, uh, time of my life. So I was thinking about, man, you have, you know, accident, you know, near life, uh, near death experience, you know, missing the, the dream of your life in the world cup, but you know, finding out you have cancer and you might not be the father of your children or, or the husband, uh, that you thought you'd become and be, that was the lowest point in my life. So I just had to keep moving forward and be strong for my family and Ultimately, that's what carried me forward and positivity. And yeah, I was able to, to play another year and a half. I got traded to Philly. Then I, I said, all right, time, time's up. I've, I've made the most of, of this, this career and now it's time to start a new one. And I was excited for that. I, I don't miss the game at all. Like people always say, oh, do you miss playing? And I'm like, I, not at all, because I literally gave everything I possibly could, every drop, every ounce, and I didn't leave anything. I, there was nothing left in the tank to give. I had to give that since 2011, when I started playing again with DC United, 
from that moment, it was, I had to empty my tank every week, every day, just to, to, to get to the next one. And I was always constantly trying to catch my old self. So I, I never had anything left. I was always trying to use everything I had every day because I was like, maybe this is my last day. So that led me to what I do now, which is obviously TV, broadcasting for the revolution now, which is so much fun. I love it. Brad Feldman's a great partner. Then CBS, was the, which is the ultimate dream to be on at a desk with Kate Abdo, who is brilliant. And then Gooch, Mo, and Clint are, are you know, were my brothers in the locker room. Yeah. And then philanthropy, right? So with all my experiences, both as a kid and, and as, a, as a person, as a, as a professional, I know I have this gift to give back and to motivate and to make people see, maybe see more clearly or, you know, enlighten them, encourage them, whatever it is. I know I have, I have a special talent and, I, and it's it, it a shame not to, not to, not to give back and be a part of, of the communities that, that I live in, which is, you know, greater Boston. So that's, that's kind of what I do now and, and trying to make the most of, of every day. We've gathered so much of it that we actually live that mantra, there is no tomorrow, but today is the most important day because it's the only day. I think that's, that's actually great. And knowing how hard it is to have twins come home from the NICU and just raising two, you know, like, like, like you did, how difficult that was and then to get back on the horse and be fighting cancer and actually be partying again. It's unbelievable. It's, it's, it's um, amount of work and the, the tough choices you've had to make to make that happen is really unbelievable. That last bit about transitioning into media, how did you know, how did that come about? So you're a player, you're about to retire or you've retired, you know, how did you decide to make that transition and then be like, oh, I'm actually really good at this. I think I always liked the camera. I liked doing interviews. I was never shy. And so, you know, as a, as a professional too, it's all about the the relationships that you make and and you know i was always keen on on making sure everyone felt appreciated so even when we we're doing things with the with the the media team i was you know talking to the camera guys i was talking to the light the guys doing the light and you you want to bring you know a positive you know i'd say you want to make sure that everyone feels appreciated and respected and so every time that i had done something with the media, I, I kind of gave off that impression. And, and so I created, you know, a lot of relationships. And so when my career was over, there was a, a number of calls and emails saying, Hey, I think you'd be great at this because I remember, you know, in 2014, we did an interview and you were phenomenal. And I always told you, you're going to be good at this and I want to help you get there. So all of a sudden, because of how kind you were during your time as a, as a professional, People don't forget. No one forgets how you act and, and how you treated them, how you made them feel. And so I think due to that, I, I was very fortunate that I had a lot of people reach out to me and, and kind of help me in that transition. One in, one in particular was Shaw Brown, who was a producer for ESPN, for NBC, for, you know, for, for literally every network, Fox. And so he, he kind of helped me get started. And you know, one of my best friends, Stu Holden, is the lead uh, broadcaster for Fox. And so when you have two of those people who are, are close to you and, and want to see you succeed and are going to help you and open doors for you, it's tough not to, not to make it work, right? And I, I think the best piece of advice that I, that I received when I retired was, one, don't say 
no to anything until you try it because you might you may never know that you like it you may be good at something you never thought you'd be good at and so or you may try something that you thought you liked and then you find out i don't really like it that much and then two you have to put in the same work ethic you did as an athlete so just because you were an all-star or you did this it means absolutely nothing when you restart right you have to start from the ground floor and the only way you got to becoming an all-star or being so stellar in your sport was from the work ethic and the hard work and you have to you you have to bring that same attitude to the next phase of your career whatever that is and so and that that's that's kind of and then you know, watch games like i was as a player i study it and add it to you know my my broadcasting career and, and i think that's really allowed me to to excel it's a big it's very wise words having to take a work ethic but really just because you were great on the field does not make you a great analyst and you have to work every day and control and amateurs people um, MLS, so you've seen it from multiple different iterations. How has that changed over the last kind of 10, 15 years in your eyes? And where's it gone? I mean, it's grown considerably. It's an incredible league. And, and Don Garber is, he's just done a phenomenal job. I mean, he's always winning like executive of the year because he, he's just, uh, he's gifted with his words and he's gifted. He's just got this gifted mindset where he's, trying to drive the league forward and doing it in a, in a smart, economically smart way. So, you know, a lot of leagues in Europe now look at MLS and be like, man, that, that model works. Like we, we want to, we need that model. So, you know, our businesses aren't going bankrupt. Our clubs aren't going bankrupt. So you, you look at that and you, you just have a real appreciation for, for the league and the popularity and, you know, the TV rights are coming up now. So It'll be interesting to see what that looks like, what that deal is. I'm sure it'll be shared across different networks, but yeah. I'm really interested to see what that number is for, for the next TV rights for MLS. And it's the first time that they're not being uh, packaged together with the U.S. soccer rights. So that'll be interesting. But yeah, I think what's also important is being able to take constructive criticism. Like you, you have to be able to take criticism to be able to move forward, right? And, and I always tell you know, Shaw Brown, like he, you're giving me two footed challenges. Like, I feel like you're, you're giving me these red card challenges, but you need to take, you need to hear that to grow, even though you might not like it and maybe it's not the best thing, but you have to be able to hear from people who know what they're doing and to be able to take that criticism and turn it into to something positive to, to, to work at, uh, work towards. So it's, it's not easy. Like, like most things, the, the great things are not easy you got to work at it. And in the end, you're going to benefit and become better. And so in that regard, what would be your advice for, you know, a league like Major League Rugby, but it's rapidly growing, but it's not in where the, the soccer world is uh, by any stretch. I mean, what would be your advice? Take it slow. Don't, don't expand too fast. You know, really, really connect with your markets. I think that's really important and, and in connecting, it's, it's not just being a rugby player, right? It's, it's being a community leader. It's about learning about the deficiencies of, of your community and what can you do to, to add value? Because those are the people who are going to come out and watch you because you've given back you've been a part of that community. You felt you've made them feel attached to your club because you're going out and you're dedicating your time to help others. And so you're, you're growing your brand within your community and people are going to attach to it. And, and that's what's been done, you know, for, for years and decades with, with, you know, premier league clubs and, and the top cl clubs and sports in the world is 
you're a staple in that community because you, whether it's you give them that, that hour or two hours or three hours, whatever it is to, to kind of get away from the things that they, they struggle with throughout their week or throughout their days, or you're out there alongside them helping, you know, get them get their things done throughout their week or their day or their job or helping people, that's going to add value and that's going to bring more people to the stands and that's going to bring, you know, more attention to your club. And so the more that I think the rugby league can, can, you know, work with other sports to collaborate, collaborate with, with the community, the, the, the more affection uh, and affinity towards the sport and the club throughout, you know, the, the, the months, the, the, the years, and we're just going to continue to see the league grow side by side with MLS. Really fantastic to have you on. How do folks find you on social media? Yeah. Charlie Davies nine on Twitter, Charlie Davies zero nine on Instagram. And yeah, I, I look forward to talking with people. I'm an open book. I love to help people love to connect with different nonprofit organizations. So Look me up. And Thank you so much. Thanks, folks, for listening to the latest episode of Full Contact CEO. Charlie Davies, please look him up. Charlie Davies 9 on Instagram. Charlie Davies 9 on Twitter.